Oscar Wilde once said, be yourself because everybody else is already taken. Be yourself, everybody else is already taken. Maybe you've uh, either given or received that advice to somebody recently, just be yourself. Maybe uh, you are a parent who sent your children off to the first day of school the past uh, few weeks and they were concerned and anxious about how they would be received and if they would have friends and you said, just go out there and be yourself. Go be yourself. Maybe as you were preparing for a job interview or a first date, somebody told you, you know what, don't feel any pressure. Uh, just go out there and be yourself. I had, uh, I had one uh, church invite me to come and speak and I was asking them what, what I should do, what I should say, what, what, what I should preach on. And they said, oh no, no, just be yourself and be authentic, you'll do great. And I wanted to, I was tempted to say, well, which one is it? Do you want me to be myself or do you want me to be authentic? Uh, because myself, I often feel insecure. I feel like a pretender. I feel like a poser. I feel desperately like I'm trying to, to connect and do well. So which, which one do you want me to be? The question uh, that comes to John the Baptist to start our passage today, if you live long enough, you realize that this is a, a trickier question than it seems. Who are you? Who are you? When you go out there to be yourself, who is it uh, that you are? Is it, are you defined by your personality, your extroversion or your introversion, your sense of humor? Are you defined by your relationships, your nationality? Who are you? Are you defined by your achievements and what you've done in the world? Are you defined by what you believe and what you think? Perhaps if you're a Christian, you know that somehow you're supposed to be defined above all else by being in Christ. And yet, if we're honest, sometimes it feels like we're just as determined by our personality and our achievements and how we dress and what we do as anyone else in the world. And so if you want to live a whole and authentic life, if you want to live a life that's rooted in a sense of grounded identity, we have to be able to answer the same question that comes to John here. Who are you? Who are you really? Who are you at your core? Who are you? This is one, as we go through the Gospel of John, it's full of these questions that are seemingly uh, simple on their surface, but which as you get into them, you realize are quite complex or quite deep are the ultimate questions of life. Who are you really? And so John the Baptist, in the, in the passage that we're looking at today, we look at two days in the life of John the Baptist. The Gospel of John, like all of the Gospels, starts not with the ministry of Jesus, but with the ministry of John. And here, John, uh, the evangelist, the, the, the author of the Gospel, gives us two days in the life of John the Baptist where he's interacting with questions coming to him from the outside. In the first day, he's dealing with answering the question about who he is. And on the second day, he's dealing with the question who Jesus is, because the two are always related. Who we, who we know ourselves to be is always downstream of who we believe God is, who we believe Jesus is. And so we're gonna look at what John the Baptist uh, knew about who he was, about who he wasn't, and ultimately about who Jesus is. You see, John the Baptist had drawn quite a crowd to himself outside of town. He was baptizing people uh, for repentance. You see, this is uh, baptism before Jesus. So this is prior to Jesus's appearance on the scene, and yet already he's baptizing people. Baptism predates Christianity. Now, Jesus breathes it with, with new life and new sacramental worth, but baptism was an act of ritual purification and transformation. 
It was a way of somebody saying, I need to be made new. I need to, to be changed. And so we know that religious leaders in Israel, uh, we know this from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that there were other people who baptized converts into Judaism, who baptized people who were dedicating themselves to special service. And yet here's John the Baptist saying the entire nation needs to be baptized. All of Israel needs to be clean. They need to be washed. They need to be transformed. And so naturally the question would come from the religious leaders, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say that you can cleanse and purify and challenge all of Israel through your preaching? Who do you think you are? And so John the Baptist starts by saying three things that he's not. First, he says, he confessed and did not, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. You know, it would have been natural. This was a time of heavy messianic expectation where people were looking for the Messiah, the promised Savior to come. So it would have been natural for people to assume that maybe John the Baptist is that one. And yet John the Baptist says emphatically, I am not the Christ. It's a pretty bold thing. If you were to come up to me and say, Dave, who are you? And I were to say, well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the savior of the world. You'd go, all right. That's a, I suppose that's a good, a good start. That's a good start towards humility. You're not the savior of the world. But that's where John starts. I'm not, I'm not the savior. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one who's to come. You know, that, that rolls right off the tongue. It's almost laughable to, to think you would even have to say, I am not the Christ. And yet that statement is actually where Christianity begins. Uh, I wonder how much pain and anxiety and worry we cause ourselves because we're unwilling to say and to mean and to believe, I am not the Christ. I am insufficient to be my own savior. I'm insufficient to be the savior of my city or those that I love. I am not the Christ. If you're anything like me, you bring onto yourself a world of anxiety. You carry burdens that you were never meant to bear in your efforts to be the Christ. So as laughable as it is to say, I am not the Christ, I really think that most of us have a very, very hard time believing it, that we are not the saviors. Maybe, maybe you experience this in your relationships. Maybe you've been in a relationship with someone that you know needs to change, you see them racked by addiction. You see them racked by destructive behaviors. You know your own relationship with them to be unhealthy, and yet you hang on, believing that you have to be the one to save them, that you have to be the one to heal them. You have to be the one to get them clean and free because you haven't yet admitted, I am not the Christ. George Bernieros, uh, in his wonderful little book, The Diary of a Country Priest, refers to this as the sweet miracle of empty hands. I love that line, the sweet miracle of empty hands. To recognize your powerlessness, to recognize your emptiness, to recognize your, your inability to save, the sweet miracle of empty hands. Have you experienced that miracle yet of, of having your hands emptied? If you have, you know that it doesn't feel like a sweet miracle <laughs> uh, when it's happening. In fact, it usually feels like a death of sorts to recognize the limits of your own abilities, the limits of your own power, the limits of your own love. You know, maybe some of you have, have realized that, that, that emptiness, the fact that you're not the Christ when you stood at the bedside of someone you loved 
while you watched them dwindle in illness or sickness or even death and you wanted so badly to heal them, so badly to set them right. And yet there at the bedside, you realize that you have no hope but to say, I'm not the healer. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. Maybe you've learned it uh, with your own children, right? Those little ones or big ones uh, that you want so badly to protect from all pain, that you want so badly to make sure that their life goes the way that it should, the way that they walk uh, forever only in health and success and prosperity and joy. And yet when you see them suffer, when you let them go, when you see them move out into the world, you learn in that moment that I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. I can't be their savior. I can't be their Lord. I can't be their protector or their healer. I'm not the Christ. Maybe you've learned it uh, in your own desires to be transformed. You're, you've been racked by addiction and you wanna get sober, but you've, you, you've been unable to or you have self-destructive patterns of anger or lust or greed, and you've wanted so badly to break those cycles. But you can't, even, you can't even save yourself. You can't even fix your own life. And so you have to recognize, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. That's where Christianity begins, and it's the path that Christianity calls us to walk, to live in an awareness that we are not the Savior. Right? Your life isn't big enough for two Christs. You can't be at the same time trying to be your own savior, trying to, to make your own life whole and healthy and, and, and complete and trying to be that for everyone else and at the same time opening yourself to Jesus in his grace. Those who don't, those who, who believe that they are the Christ, who, those who believe that they are sufficient, that they are able. French author Charles Pegui put it this way. They offer grace no entrance gate, the gate that sin confessed is by its very nature. Because such people lack nothing, that which they most need, that which means everything is not brought to them. Even the love of God does not bandage the person who has no wounds. Even the love of God does not bandage the person who has no wounds. We have to admit our weakness, our frailty, our brokenness. We have to learn to say and to mean I am not the Christ. You know, John the Baptist had a, an incredible ministry, a ministry that prepared the way to, for Jesus, a ministry that brought countless people into a place of readiness and preparedness to meet Jesus. And it was only possible because he knew his own weakness. He knew his own limits. He knew that he was not the Christ. You know, as we start, uh, we are at the cusp of a new ministry year at Christ Church in town. Kids are back in school. A lot of our ministry initiatives are starting back up. In the next few weeks, some of you will walk uh, back onto the halls of Pinedale High School to, or Pinedale Elementary School to serve as tutors. Some of you will walk back into the halls of Lee High School uh, as young life leaders going to tell people about Jesus. Uh, others of you will begin uh, just even teaching classes here within our own church or leading a growth group. Others of you, it feels like every day I meet somebody in our church that works as a, as a counselor who sits with people in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their pain and their weeping. As you go into those places, as you're, if you're a counselor, as you walk into that room and sit with those people, as you walk into that, that elementary school and meet precious little children who you have an hour of contact with in a week and who go back to a broken neighborhood and to broken families, the only way that you can do it and sustain your hope, the only way that you can do it and have anything to give is when you confess, I am not the Christ. 
I am not the savior. I am not sufficient for it. All that I bring is the sweet miracle of empty hands. Empty hands that have been filled by Jesus and therefore have something to give away in the world, but I am not the Christ. And so John clearly and unambiguously says that I am not the Christ. And then he goes on to deny two more times, two more things that he's not. He goes on to say, and I'm also not Elijah. That's an, that's an interesting thing to say. Why would, you, why would you feel like you needed to clarify that you weren't a long dead former prophet? Well, it's because he knew his Bible. He knew that Malachi, the last book of the Hebrew Bible, ends uh, with the prophecy that one day when the Messiah comes, that Elijah would go before him that Elijah would be a trailblazer who announced his coming and prepared the way. And John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. And he says, I'm not the prophet. There was another expectation. Moses himself said that one day God would raise up a prophet, a prophet like Moses for you. And he said, I'm not a prophet like Moses. John the Baptist continually refuses to take a title for himself. He refuses to promote himself. He, he refuses to, uh, to take a claim for himself. Later on in, in the Gospel of John, he's going to say that his entire calling is that he might decrease so that Jesus might increase. Right? His is a path of humility. It's a path of constantly taking titles and saying, no, no, that's not me. No, that's not me. That, that's not me either. Now, interestingly, interestingly, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, John the Baptist, he's Elijah. <laughs> he's the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. And so commentators rack their brains and spend pages after pages after pages of ink on what does it mean that John the Baptist said he wasn't Elijah and then Jesus came and says he, he is Elijah? Is this a contradiction in the scriptures? And I actually think that, that far from being a contradiction, I think that's actually the key to understanding John the Baptist, the key to understanding his ministry and really the key to understanding the gospel. Um, but we, I get ahead of myself a bit. We will, we will get there. So first, John the Baptist, like a man taking off titles and robes for himself, says who he's not. And then finally, he gets around to saying who he is. In verse 24, when they ask him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, what are you, what are you doing? And so in verse, sorry, in verse 23, he tells him who he is. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, you wanna know who I am? I am just a voice. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's picking up a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, where, it was, uh, where the prophet is looking forward to the day when God would lead his people out of captivity, out of slavery in Babylon, and bring them back to their home, back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And he's saying that there will be a voice crying out, make straight a highway through the wilderness for the Lord. The Lord will lead the people through the desert between Babylon and Jerusalem and lead them home. So what he's saying is that this is happening now, that God is bringing redemption. He's bringing his people home. He's bringing them freedom from slavery. In me, I'm not the one who does that. I'm not the Lord. I'm not the one who brings them freedom or who brings them home. I am simply a voice crying out that this is happening. I'm just a witness pointing you towards it. You know, in this, John the Baptist is really, and I think John puts him in here as uh, a model for what Christian uh, ministry and witness is made to look like. He's a prototypical Christian preacher. He is what a preacher should be. 
seeking to say, it's not me, I'm not the one. I'm just a voice. I'm simply a, a mouthpiece, a voice pointing you to Jesus. Right, in my best moments as a preacher, that's all I wanna be. Uh, right, in my worst moments, uh, I really, really wanna be a, you know, be a hot shot. I wanna hear how great I do. All that feels, to, you know, to my flesh feels very, very good. But Christian preaching is simply being a voice, pointing people to Jesus, right? The, the celebrity preacher should be an oxymoron in the world. Now it's not, we're American celebrity obsessed people. Um, so we, in, in our world, we've even made preachers into celebrities. But all that a minister is, is a voice in the wilderness, a voice that lives not to attest to his own goodness, his own might, his own smarts, his own sense of humor, any of that, but simply to say, look at Jesus. Look at him there. Look at what he's doing. A voice in the wilderness. He goes on to say in verse 26, I baptize with water. But the one is coming, he goes on to say later in the chapter, the one's coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm, I'm a, he says, I'm an ordinary man. I'm just a voice that preaches and I'm an ordinary man that baptizes with the most common substance on earth. I take water and I pour or sprinkle it on people and I baptize. But I, I just, I'm just a man who does it with water. And if it's gonna have any significance, if it's gonna have any power, if it's gonna have any real value, it's only gonna be as the one who comes who pours the spirit out through the water the one who baptizes you and who remakes you and who gives you a new life and a new power by his spirit. Me, I'm just, a, I'm just an ordinary guy with an ordinary voice who baptizes with ordinary water. But look to Jesus, the one who does it, the one who pours out his spirit. So, I am a voice. I am one who baptizes with water. And then look, verse 27. One, stand, uh, one among you stands, uh, one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. A little cultural background will help here. You know, disciples, and John, as much as he's a prototypical witness and minister, he's a prototype, he's a, he's a model for what a disciple is. Disciples did everything with their master with their teacher. They did everything with them. They followed them everywhere they went and they did so much for them. They did even the most everyday and meaningless tasks they would do as an effort to serve their teacher, as an effort to serve their rabbi. Except for there was one thing that a disciple was never asked to do for his rabbi, for his teacher, and that was to take off their shoes, to untie their sandals and to wash their feet. That was something that was thought to be beneath the dignity of even a disciple, even a student, a learner. That was reserved for the servants. That was reserved for those who, who had that position. And so John the Baptist is saying of Jesus, of the one who's to come, I'm worthy, I wanna be his disciple, but I'm not even worthy of the lowest form. Not only am I not worthy to be his disciple, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. I'm not, compared to him, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, to wash his feet. I am utterly unworthy. I am absolutely, I don't, I don't belong in the same sentence or in the same room, even as a servant with the one who is to come after me. This is John the Baptist. Remember, just at the beginning of this chapter, he was saying, I'm not the Christ. Then a little lower, I'm not Elijah. Then a little lower, I'm not the prophet. Now here he is saying, I'm not even worthy to be the servant 
of the one who comes after me. If you want to know who you are, it starts by admitting who you're not. It starts by taking a posture that takes off and refuses to take titles for yourself, that refuses to claim greatness for yourself, that only looks at the Messiah, that only looks at Christ and says, I am unworthy. I am unworthy because of my sin, because of my weakness. I'm unworthy of even untying your shoe. And now the paradox, that John takes this position of insignificance and humility. And yet Jesus, as we've alluded to earlier in, in, in Matthew 11, not only does he say that, that John the Baptist, who said that he wasn't Elijah, actually he was Elijah. He goes on to say that, uh, that of all of the human beings, of all of the people born of women, is what he says, which at last count is all of them ever. <laughs> that of all the people born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Of all the human beings who have ever been born, of all of the prophets, of all of the leaders, of all of the kings of Israel, of all of the other great and wonderful people, of all of them, of all of them, there has never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus points to him and he, and he, he, he piles up the honors onto him. The biblical authors do too. John the Baptist was, uh, was born miraculously. Right? It wasn't a virgin birth like, like Jesus's, but it was a, a couple well past childbearing age that miraculously gave birth to John. And Jesus says that all of that, all of that miraculous birth and, the, and all of his ministry, he is the greatest. The greatest human being other than, than the, the God-man Jesus that ever lived. And far from being a contradiction, this is the path to finding your identity in Christ. It's the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. It's that it's when we humble ourselves, when we confess our sins, when we admit our weakness, when we claim no honor for ourselves, that Jesus says, oh, you are worthy of great honor. You're worthy of my love and my affection. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to use you. You're going to be mighty. You're going to be first in the kingdom because you take a path of repentance and confession and humility that in that moment, Jesus lifts us up. Who are you? Is the question that John is asked. And he knows that the answer to that question, the, the, the answer to a real and rooted identity that's humble and yet bold, that's courageous and yet meek, is in claiming no great title for yourself. Saying, I don't care who I think I am. I don't even care who the world says that I am. The only one who I care what they think about me is Jesus. And my identity is secure because what he thinks about me, what he thinks about me is that, I, that I, am, I am loved and I am righteous in him, I am complete in him. He clothes me in an identity. We see this in the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 4. Always with the Corinthians, uh, Paul is having to wrestle uh, with asserting his identity. He was, he was, uh, he was often getting, uh, getting torn down by other would-be leaders in Corinth. And here's what he says with his identity and his credentials as, as an apostle under fire. He says, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Right? He, he's saying, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care if you judge me. I don't care. You can like me. You can not like me. You can say I'm an apostle. You can say I'm not an apostle. My identity doesn't ultimately rest with you. 
In fact, I don't even judge myself. Right, look, he's saying, not only do I not care what you think about me, I don't even care what I think about me. I don't care about my own self-esteem. I don't care how good I think I look when I pass by a mirror. I don't care about uh, whether or not when I walk in a room, I feel like I belong. I don't care if you give me a place of honor. I don't care if you listen when I talk. I don't care what you think about me. I don't even really care what I think about me. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Right, he's saying, look, that doesn't mean I'm sinless. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. I know that there's, I know that there's stuff out there against me. I know that I'm a sinner. It is the Lord who judges me, right? The only place where I find my identity, the only place where my worth is ultimately judged and valued is with the Lord. He alone shapes my identity. He alone shapes the way that I think about myself, not you, not even me. And I think that's what's going on with John the Baptist here. He says, I know who I'm not. I know who I am. But I know that only because I know who Jesus is only because I've met him and I know who he is. And that's what happens uh, the next day. Verse 29, the next day. So turn the page and, and it starts over. And now this is John interacting with these same people again. And he said, I already, I've already told you who I'm not. And I've told you who I am. Now let, me, now let me point you to the one who is. Let me point you to Jesus. You know, John Calvin uh, said that these two things are always locked in with each other. Our, our, view, our knowledge of ourself and our knowledge of God. His, his, uh, his institutes, his, his major work, starts by saying that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self are intimately linked with one another. That the more you know of God, the more you come to know yourself rightly. And that the more you know yourself, the more you know your own weakness and frailty, the more you come to know God. And then the more you know him, the more you start to, to see yourself in his light. And so if you want to know yourself, you have to know God. And if you want to know God, you have to get to know yourself. And so here's John saying, I've told you about me, now let me tell you about Jesus. And he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is language that we'll use sometimes in Christian liturgy. It's, it's language that we've become kind of uh, used to hearing and thinking and talking about Jesus, that he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But think about it. John the Baptist is using these words when it, nobody had ever heard this before. Right? These were people who, who knew what a lamb from God was. The, the, the lambs were the lambs that they sacrificed again and again and again, day after day, week after week in their temple. And yet here's John the Baptist looking at a man, a, a person, and saying, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it's, it's, it's awkward to translate it in English, although they get at it, but uh, the Greek here has the proper... Uh, the definite article in every single one of these. So it's actually, behold, the lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. It's clear what John the Baptist is doing is he's saying, this is the one, right? He's not a lamb. He's not one of many sacrifices necessary, like the sacrifices that go on in your temple. This is the lamb. Of the God, this is not uh, one possible way to, to one of many deities in the world. This is the way to the God who takes away the sin of the world, right? He doesn't just say, although there's places that'll say, he doesn't say here that this is the, the, the lamb who takes away the sins of those people who will believe in him. Although there's clearly John believes that, it, that, that you have to have faith in order to get in on this sin removing power of Jesus. 
But here he's talking about this is the lamb who's not only gonna take away the individual sins of those who believe in him, but this is the lamb who's gonna wash away the sins of the entire globe. This is the one who's ultimately gonna rid the entire world of the stain of sin forever and ever. Right now we've said that the entire book of John is written so that you might believe in his name and in believing have life, right? You do have to have faith in order to have your sins washed away by this lamb of God. But here he's saying, this is the one, this is the redeemer of all things. This is the one, the lamb that takes away the sin that's kept the entire world under a shroud for millennia. And this guy, this one, is the one who is going to wash all of that away. Verse 32, and John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He looks at Jesus and says, this is the one whose sacrifice can make you clean and this is the one whose spirit can make you new. It can give you a new power, a new way to live a new life. And so what he sees, he sees the spirit like a dove come and remain on Jesus. It's a, it's a powerful word. It's an important word when he says that he sees the spirit remain on Jesus. In the Old Testament, the spirit kind of comes and goes. It'll come on a leader. It'll come on a person. It'll come on a prophet for a season to accomplish a task, maybe to preach a prophetic message, maybe to commission them for a task, like to reign as a king or to defeat God's enemies. But on Jesus, the, the spirit doesn't just come and empower him and then leave. The spirit comes and it falls on him and it remains. It rests on him, it envelops him. So that Jesus then has the spirit. He lives in his, his entire life under the power of the spirit. And he then has the spirit to be able to baptize, to be able to pour it out on all who are in him. And so here's Jesus. One commentator uh, says that he's got the, uh, that this, this section shows that he has the power for sin removal and heart renewal. And that, I'm, I'm not usually good at rhyming, so I like that one. But Jesus has the power for sin removal to make you right with God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and heart renewal to pour on you the Holy Spirit to make you new, to give you new life. This Jesus has the power to do that, to do it for John and to do it for you. You know, there's a few little words in here that to me uh, give me great hope. John the Baptist, prior to seeing the Holy Spirit come and shine like a spotlight on Jesus, which is what the Spirit always does. If you wanna know if something is from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is always there shining a light on Jesus, showing Jesus for who he is. And John says, Remember, John the Baptist, the, the one of whom those born of men, there's never been anyone greater. Pretty high praise. John the Baptist says, I myself did not recognize him until I saw the Holy Spirit light him up. I myself did not recognize him. Now listen, I, I can be pretty dense. Uh, there's all kinds of things I should get and understand in my life that I don't. They just fly right over my head. But I like to think that if I was John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, 
who, who met him before I was born, right? Some of the gospel narratives have this story where Mary and Elizabeth come together and John the Baptist leaps in, in the womb for being around Jesus. So John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, the one of whom nobody greater has ever been born, said, you know what, I didn't, I didn't recognize him. I didn't, I didn't know it. I was here, I was baptizing folks. And, uh, and, then, and then my cousin was in the audience. My cousin was right there. He'd been there with us right in the middle of the congregation. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't until the light of the Holy Spirit came and descended on him like a spotlight and said, oh, I guess he's the one. I guess he's the Messiah. I guess he's the one who can remove the sin of the world, the one who can bring the spirit to the world that I didn't recognize him. I'd I'd been with him my whole life. When our family got together to, to celebrate Passover, cousin Jesus was there. And I never knew, I never would have imagined that he was the savior. You know, some of us have been familiar with Jesus for a very, very long time, right? Some of you grew up in the church. Some of you grew up so around Jesus that he was just kind of a part of the furniture of your home. You grew up and you had a nativity set maybe, or you, you had a picture of Jesus on the wall. You had a cross, maybe you had a family Bible. Maybe even grew up uh, getting taken to church, taken to youth group. John the Baptist shows us that it's possible to be very, very near to Jesus and to not know Jesus. That it's possible to to, to see him and to be aware of him, but to not know that he is who he says that he is. To not know that he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that that even you are in need of him taking away your sin. That he's the one who has the power to give you new life by his spirit. And it may be that this morning, the Holy Spirit, like he did for John on that day, is shining a light on Jesus and saying, this is the one, this is the one that you've been looking for. If you want to know who you are, if you want to have an identity and know really that you're loved and cherished, that your sin is forgiven and that you have new life, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Maybe that's you today. It simply starts with like it did for John saying, you know what, I'm not the Christ. I've been trying to save myself for far too long and I need another, I need, a, I need a savior. I need a redeemer beyond myself. Acknowledging that that redeemer is Jesus and trusting him for salvation. Who are you? As you leave this place, as you, as you go back to work, as you go back to your family, as you go back to a world that's constantly trying to tell you who you are, Well, it starts like it did with John. You gotta know who you're not. You're not Jesus, you're not the savior. You have to know who you are, uh, an insignificant, unworthy one who in Christ is deeply loved, adored, and set free. And you have to know who Jesus is, the lamb of God, and the one who gives you the spirit of new life. Let's pray.